On episode 14 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss hiding and disabling of menu items, whether conversational communication styles are destroying writing on the web, and the eternal flame of software engineering, the object-to-relational mapping problem, on IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hey, Joel. Hey, Jeff. What uh, what day is it? Is Today it, is Tuesday. Is it podcast day? It's podcast day. It's for, always a very exciting day. Let's do a podcast. Yes. Let us. Okay. Um, so today is, well, Tuesday is, you know what else? Tuesday is awesome. Because uh, every Tuesday there's new songs for Rock Band, and this week is epic because it's uh, the best of the Who. Oh, really? They have the Who? Yeah. So I got to, well, there was one Who song in uh, Guitar Hero 3 called uh, The Seeker. I don't know if you know it. It's really fun to play. Uh, but this is the best of, so it has stuff like Baba O'Reilly, uh, Eminence Front, um, Behind Blue Eyes. Pretty big hits, so it was really fun. I was just playing it outside, actually. Does it have Who Are You? It does have that. I played that as well. Oh my god. Yeah, it's I'm great. playing this game. You know what I learned the other day? So the, the song Baba O'Reilly, mm-hmm. there's some guru, some Indian guru that I guess back in the 60s, one, I don't know if it was Pete Townsend or which, some member of the Who, uh, Roger Daltrey maybe, uh, was under the influence of this, this guru. And the song Baba O'Reilly is named for that guru, the first name Baba something. But I, he, there's some like church for him down the street from our house, very California. There's like a you know, there's a little strip mall, and in the strip mall, there's this place where you go, and there's all these pictures of this guy on the wall. Uh, there was like an art stroll, which is why we were in there. And I was like, "What is this place?" And my, my my wife figured it out. She's like, "Oh, this is that guru, Baba. I don't even know his name. I'll have to look it up." Uh, but that's this from the song Baba O'Reilly as well. So there's your random, pointless trivia of the day. So I'm I'm intrigued by this. You're saying that they have gurus in India too. <laughs> I always associated gurus with India, but maybe you know, there's other oh. places to come from. Yeah, is that not true? I don't know. <laughs> I thought it, I thought it was like a like a code thing. Oh no 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 no! It's a it's tr- traditional religion, you know. Mm-hmm. Thanks. But yeah. Um, usually, you have something to talk about. I do, but I want, this time I want to do something a little different. The reason I was being quiet is because we had some stuff from last time that you wanted to talk about. In particular, uh, you had a blog entry about disabling menu items that we were going to discuss. That's a good idea. Let's talk about the disabling of menu items. I'm not actually – this is a meta conversation. I didn't really want to talk about the disabling of menu items. Um, I was sort of thinking about Twitter and how people are now writing these one-line blog posts, and I used to waste all this time writing 13-page blog posts. And as time went on, people got whinier and whinier the more words you put in your post. And uh, I sort of came up with a list of five or six things that I thought were good, you know, two-paragraph posts, Um, Mm -hmm. five, six, seven sentences, 
And, uh, and I thought I would post them and just sort of knock them out, and I'd put one up just to see what would happen. And uh, the trouble is, if you put something up without writing a long enough post to actually make your full case, um, you just get misunderstood. Was sort of what I well, concluded. Well, um, I think you took it too far, though. I mean, my impression was there's there's some in between between thirteen pages and like one. Was your post even one paragraph? It was really, it was, <laughs> it was absurd. three paragraphs. <laughs> it was I mean, really absurdly short. I mean, I felt uh, like you could have done like five paragraphs, maybe ten paragraphs. That would have, I think, done it some justice. I felt like yeah, three. Felt there's very three paragraphs complete. there. Really? It, it's very short for something I would post. And uh, so here's, you know, what the post said is uh, don't disable menu items that, that aren't available. Uh, instead, um, leave them enabled. And uh, just that gives you an opportunity to tell people why that particular uh, item was not going to work. And so there's really a lot of things I kind of learned from this. None of them have to do with menu items. Um, uh, the first is that... Uh, as soon as you have something that's this short, for me at least, as soon as I write something that's this short, uh, you know, I don't really plant my foundations well enough. I don't explain the situation. I don't frame the question, what kind of menu item these are, what kind of application you're writing. Uh, I, don't, I, I didn't write defensively like I usually have to, qualifying it with every possible email response I could ever get. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it actually led to quite a lot of people saying, no, that's wrong. You should not. You should disable or hide menu items that do not apply. Um, and, and usually they, they went a lot further than that. And, and so this is somewhat useful because, you know, there's some discussion of the subject in the blogosphere and that discussion in itself and just even thinking about this issue um, is, is more valuable than if I hadn't brought it up and nobody thought about it. Um, what I did see actually uh, in about uh, 85 to 90% of the responses that I got via email or that I saw people post on their own blogs or in discussion groups is that uh, what people tended to do is just think of a use case that's interest that that just one use case that's that's on their mind for some reason, and then evaluate whether or not you should disable menu items based on that particular use case that they happen to have in their mind. So, for example, I got uh, I saw one person who said, you know, well here I am in my email program and I don't have a message open, and this particular menu item that has all these message commands, all of them are grayed out. So, are you telling me that those should all be enabled? And uh, actually, uh, yes, I was. I was saying they should be enabled. And if, you, if you're trying to forward a message and you don't actually have one open, then um, you, know, you, you have a misunderstanding as a user and you need that to be clarified. You know, somebody needs to explain that to you. And that's one of the jobs of the application to make it easier for you to understand how to use it is to correct your misunderstandings about how the program works. But what I actually got is a lot of people that were kind of upset that they imagined they would be clicking on all these menu items hoping that they would work, and then they would have to dismiss an annoying dialog box. And uh, that's fine. And you know, there's obviously a great um, uh, uh, middle ground here where you, uh, you try to disable the menu item somehow, but you still provide some indication as to what would have to be done to enable it or, or why it doesn't work. So you, you need to find some kind of UI metaphor, which you're Nobody really has a great suggestion for, and it's not very common, but some kind of UI metaphor where the thing looks disabled, but you still know that you can find out what to do uh, to get it to work. Uh, in, in the web, it may be easier where you can still make something like linkable but gray or, uh, or have a little info button next to it. Uh, typical uh, GUI application programming, the, the standard menus that they come with just don't give you that as an option. So that would be the optimum strategy, obviously, is to disable the things and then provide some kind of a little indicator 
as to why they're disabled. But if you're not going to provide that indicator, uh, I, I, I would still argue firmly uh, not to disable them. And, and I was thinking of a different use case. So my, the use case I was thinking of is that you had mentioned um, that uh, in the Windows Media Player, uh, you can play things faster um, when, you're, when you're listening to podcasts and so forth, and it'll speed them up. And um, when I looked in there, that was disabled. And I couldn't figure out how to enable it. And obviously, the help file is no help. Uh, not that anybody reads help files, but uh, even if you did, you couldn't find the answer to that. And um, that was kind of frustrating. And I'd rather have that menu item be enabled and have it uh, uh, just tell me, I- I'm not going to do this right now because of the following reason I refuse to do this. Because I, I didn't think, think it would have been, as an experiment, I think it's kind of strange because, I mean, the outcome is not really is pretty predictable, I think. And, and particularly in your case, because you don't really allow comments. I know there's a link to like the Joel on software sort of discussion, but it's not really in line. Right. So sometimes when I, the way I view this is when I write something and people misunderstand it, I, I have really failed as a writer Oh yeah. Uh, to communicate what I was trying to communicate. Correct. So setting out with that intent is, is a little weird, but, but sometimes no, I, I didn't set out with the intent to fail. I just wanted to see how short <laughs> I could take it before it failed. And I went, I went beyond the shortness and and uh, and um, um, yeah, yes, right, I have. But, but you're also lacking the context of course correction of comments. Like in comments, a lot of times people will tell me they look for my orange. I have a little JavaScript that highlights my my comments, and they'll scroll through and just read my comments, particularly if there's a lot of comments. Yeah. Uh, just to get a sense of like if I did any course corrections, trying to clarify. Because sometimes even though you're trying really hard to communicate, people just won't get it for some reason. A, a few people, and what you can do is clarify in the comments, and and that. You know, it's tacked on directly on the bottom, so there's, it's just right below the fold, so it's not an additional click in sort of a different area. And also, with regards to Twitter, usually those are conversational. Like, you'll say something, and then people go, oh, you meant this, and you'll say, no, 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 I meant this, right? Well, so a- still- actually, part of that is a problem that I'm fighting. I mean, yeah, yeah you're right. Uh, it, it's the conversationalness that, that is, I think, leading to the, the demise of, of blogs. I, I hate to say this, but um, as soon as you get people... I mean, really, when, 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 when it was harder to publish a blog and to write full-length essays on a topic, uh, and people worked on them and spent more time on their essays and, and put more thought into them and didn't want to kind of embarrass themselves by, by putting out a, a, effectively a, a paper or, or an essay on a subject that they hadn't really thought about and they didn't want to defend. And there was a, a brief period like that. And um, we got some pretty good blog posts. Uh, and now where there's this world of just sort of everybody being a blogger and it's just your opinion and blah, blah, blah. You have an enormous number of people who are actually not qualified um, to, uh, to, uh, to provide some input into something. And that's okay. I'm not saying they shouldn't blog just because they're not qualified. I'm saying that what they're doing is they're like having a conversation. It's like if they were kind of hanging out with their friends talking about some particular topic, this is what they would say. They wouldn't go research it before they open their mouth. They would just say it. And posting on a blog nowadays is easy enough that you can you can do that, and unfortunately, that means that the signal to noise uh, on blogs has, has has gone substantially for the worse. It's it's sort of turned into um, the the permanent September. Remember the permanent September? Yeah, that's when they let the AOL users on to use that. Yeah, and um and and one of the things that I noticed is for a while there was a period when the uh, Usenet had deteriorated to just 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 all noise and no signal. Uh, or basically, the, the the noise was was drowning out any useful signal that had that uh, that had been there um, previously, and um, and then there was a switch to the web, and creating a website was so much harder than posting on Usenet that uh, for a while it required sort of a more elite <laughs> kind of uh, software developer, effectively, because it was software developers who were posting on the internet because they, the only ones could figure out how to do it, and uh, the quality went up for a while, 
Uh, and as the tools got easier and easier and easier, uh, and we got these great blogging tools that are absolutely trivial to use, uh, you actually get an awful lot of teenagers who have interesting things to say to their friends, and that's what they're doing there, but, uh, and that's okay. Uh, but the net result is that there's a whole bunch of articles that look a whole lot like uh, your blog posts or my blog posts, which you know, are either you know, relatively well-researched and relatively, relatively uh, edited uh, and thought about, I guess, uh, compared to uh, the kinds of other things that people say as, as if they were having a conversation. And again, I should emphasize, not that there's anything wrong with it. Uh, it's just that there is something about the blog world where if you, t- if you take 20 articles on programming topics, uh, nowadays, uh, 15 of them are written by people who really don't have very much experience in the thing that they're blogging about and are actually giving you life advice based on one particular thing that happened to them in their career, which is their first job out of school, or maybe they're still in school or, or whatever. And uh, it is indistinguishable, actually, from something from somebody with a lot more credibility. From, is it really? It's not indistinguishable. I, I don't well, how do you, I mean, what is, how does it look different than something that Paul Graham posts or that, uh, that you post? Uh, well, somebody posts their opinion based on, you know, nothing. Well, it's all about effective communication. I mean, if you have somebody who try, happens to be a young programmer who's a really effective communicator, yeah. Um, then I think they deserve to be read, and they will be read. No, but they're fine. They deserve to be read, but they're wrong. <laughs> they're saying wrong things. Well, I, I, wrong I things think that's that very relative. Really I mean, wh- how do you define wrong? I mean, like what? Well, like wrong meaning that if you if you say this is a good idea, I'm going to do that, then you'll have bad results. I, I don't think it's a relative. I think that there's just wrong things you can say. Well, I think the audience should learn to read critically and should learn to ask okay. for data. I mean, if someone has an opinion, it's like, okay, you yeah. have an opinion, it's great, but what data are you basing this on? That's really the job of the reader to be critical you know, of that stuff. And then on top of that, you have this meta layer of like Reddit and Dig and Hacker News and all these other filtering mechanisms that are designed to bring the good stuff out and filter it and move it to the top of the is list. Really, I mean, do they really do that? It seems like Reddit brings out the stuff that sounds like there's a conspiracy theory and we're about to invade Iran. That stuff is the first stuff that will come up. So I don't even know if that's – I mean I don't know if these things they'll, – they'll, they'll post things that match their worldview, which sometimes is real and sometimes is, is just wacky. Uh, but but I don't really think they're really doing a great job of evaluating whether the people that say the things should be qualified to say them. Well, I know when, when my stuff happens to go up, I, I do read the comments that come up on Reddit, and there's certainly no shortage of criticism. I mean, people mm-hmm. are very, very critical. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I, and, it, and of your stuff as well, like particularly the, yeah. the, uh, the last thing you did with the menus, was <laughs> there was a lot of criticism. So it's not, there's no shortage of criticism, I guess is my point. People aren't saying, you know, oh, this is, you know, accepting what you say at face value. Right, and I don't want them to, and I do want them to, to, uh, to read things critically. That's, that's important, otherwise they would have believed me and, and, and uh, maybe done the wrong thing. But, but uh, more, more importantly is the, the trouble is a lot of these areas that we're writing about and that a lot of people are writing about are, are not measurable or quantifiable. Should you do, you know, code reviews this way or that way? Should you have a, this kind of schedule or that kind of schedule? Should you talk about your competitors by name or not talk about your competitors by name? Uh, there isn't, unfortunately, uh, these are not the kinds of things for which scientific experiments have been devised and anybody has any data. What they have is their own personal anecdotes. And um, what happens is that there's different kinds of people in the world and there are people that just don't have a lot of experience and therefore have not been exposed to a lot of anecdotes, and they've seen maybe one kind of thing, and they've said, you know, that one time in this particular case, so I'm going to go make a general rule out of that thing. And the trouble is, 
it, to, to me, it becomes enormously frustrating because if, for example, let's say that you wanted to read uh, a pretty good uh, news community news aggregator, which is uh, Hacker News uh, at news.ycombinator.com, uh, which is uh, set up by Paul Graham of Y Combinator and is populated by uh, basically a lot of kids starting software companies or internet companies. And if you were just to take the top post every single day that, that rises to the top and jot down the advice that that allegedly gives you, within about three months, you would have seen completely contradictory advice in every possible dimension. Do this, how is that different than all these business books that come out? That they're exactly the same. They're exactly, exactly the same. same. I mean, I there's know. no difference. Correct. Well, it depends. The, the business books, and, the, and that is actually another frustrating thing. Some of these business books, and a good example is Good to Great, uh, are, are written actually with uh, enormous amounts of research. Um, literally dozens of researchers working for years and years and years, gathering tons and tons of data, doing uh, all kinds of uh, crazy statistical analysis, and actually coming to some uh, conclusions which are um, rather interesting. So in Good to Great, there's this interesting conclusion that uh, the most successful lasting companies are the ones um, where uh, management or, or the, the CEO and or founder actually show the least ego amount of ego, which is kind of an interesting conclusion. And this is numerical data. This is sort of based wait, on... Wait, wait. How do you measure ego? Wait, wait. I know. How is that data? They count things like how many times that he uses the word I when oh. describing the company or whether he says we in okay. describing the company. Okay. Uh, it, it bizarre, bizarre things like that that, that, that do, do correlate. So anyway, that, that's kind of – I think this is the right book, Good to Great. I, I should double-check on that. But, but there are actually books that are out there that are the results of enormous amounts of research or enormous amounts of scientific data. I mean books based on, um, based on uh, loads and loads of actual findings of, of, of uh, you know, academic research that was done uh, exist. And you're right. It is very strange. It's very hard to distinguish between those things and Seth Godin just giving you his opinion. Because both of those books, Seth Godin writes better and his books are more interesting. And I happen to think he's writer in some way. I mean, he's more right. You know, I, 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 I love well, listening to that, but it's just his story. opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, but if you can tell a story, right, and yeah. provide at least some anecdotes and, and maybe allude or ideally present some data along with that, that's just basically effective writing in general, effective persuasive writing. So if you can do that and you can persuade people that, okay, maybe they should try this, right, yeah. then how is that a net negative? I think it's all about that good very dangerous? Is that saying that the person that's most persuasive should decide what we should do? Rather but that's than say, what actually happens anyway. Right, right, right. And that's what I'm complaining about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually don't mind that. I think that if you're persuasive, and I think there are other persuasive people who, if they see that you're wrong, yeah. will have that conversation about, hey, this guy is misleading you for these reasons. He's it, not it actually depends. I mean, I'm very persuasive. So if I get into an argument with somebody here at Fog Creek, mysteriously, I tend to win. Yes. I don't know why. And well, you're also the, the boss, right? That must have something to do with it. I know, and as much as I try to train them to uh, to uh, do what they what they're going to do anyway, and I and I do I do th I do that very actively. And uh, after they, you know, de a developer who's been here for about a year or two knows to talk back to me, right? Uh, but they don't for a while. And this actually sometimes concer concerns me because I I do like to be persuasive and to win arguments and to have things my way. But, but you don't win all the time. That's boring. Well. No, I don't know. I got to go for all the time. But it, but that's not the right thing. That doesn't mean that the right thing will happen. Yeah. So yeah. I have to be really careful to recuse myself. And one of the things – so wh where does this all lead? I'm not really sure. One of the things that um, – here are two things that are indistinguishable. Uh, and we may have talked about this before. I don't remember if it was on the podcast or not. So at some point, 
dear listeners, this podcast will start to repeat itself. And, uh, <laughs> just like real people. <laughs> just like real people. I, I mean, Rush Limbaugh must have said the same, must have done two shows that were indistinguishable, you know, almost identical. Right. You, there must be two shows you can find there where he just says the same thing. Anyway, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the thing that I want to say for the 18th time is uh, it's really hard. When, you write a, uh, when a journalist writes a, a business story, let's say Business Week, uh, magazine where he's writing some story about, um, let's say the story is about foreclosures, right? In, in Business Week, if there's a story about foreclosures, there's going to be a picture of, a, of an overweight family standing in front of a house. And uh, they're going to be looking kind of sad and they're going to have bad complexions. It's just guaranteed. And the, 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 uh, the, the house used to be theirs, but it's going to have like a foreclosed sign in front of it. or so For some reason, they no longer are allowed to live in this house. And so they're sad. And uh, that's guaranteed. And, and the first paragraph of the story in Business Week magazine about foreclosures is going to be about a particular family. It, absolutely guaranteed. Now, what's interesting, and that's just the, that's their house style. That's the way they do these things. And they tell you an anecdote. Now, a good journalist who has to produce a story like this for Business Week, what, what they're going to do is they're going to research foreclosures. They're going to see who it's affecting. They're going to see generally what's, what, what's going on here, how many foreclosures are there, what kind of people are losing their houses, et cetera, et cetera, what parts of the country. And uh, they're going to write the story, and they're going to say, now I've got to find an example of, uh, of, of, of an almost typical family in order to give a personal picture here of what's going on. I'm going to find the most typical family, and uh, that's who it's going to be the picture. That's who the story is going to be about, and that's going to illustrate my point in a way which conveys more truth than what the original article d- did because it, it makes it, it brings it home to you. And, and this is a, the kind of anecdote, and this is the thing we, we say is good uh, in writing. And that's fine. I'm not really criticizing that in particular. Um, unfortunately, that is indistinguishable from a typical story that you'll read in the style section of the New York Times, which is, uh, um, or, 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 which is one of these stories that's full of uh, weasel words. So it says, more and more such and such is happening. So more and more Ivy League uh, women who graduate are opting to uh, raise families instead of joining the workforce. And um, the, the word more doesn't mean very much, and it's not a very strong word, but sometimes they have even more ways of weaseling out of actually making a statement. And so you'll have this story that's just completely made up that has no statistical evidence and no actual basis of fact in it, but it also starts with one of these anecdotes, and the anecdote is a story about some family or some person. And that particular person is a friend of the journalist's, and the journalist was obviously desperate for a story and asked a friend, hey, can I write about you? And then the editor said, well, this isn't interesting. This is just a story about your friend going to the Hamptons. And you say, well, let's say I guess i got to make a story about it. You know, it, we, As summer months enter, more and more young people are choosing to share houses in the Hamptons. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, and there's nothing – there's no actual uh, statement being made here. There's an implication that there's some trend and that this is a trend story. But though there's enough weasel words in the article that there's no actual truths being asserted. And then there's a fun, interesting anecdote, which I like. I love the anecdotes. They're great. But the whole thing is being disguised as news, and it's, and it's done in a way that is indistinguishable from Business Week, where the journalist has actually tried to find a particular example that best illustrates uh, a story that otherwise would be dry and boring. Right. So the so, use of anecdotes is very dangerous here, I think. Well, the anecdotes outside w- without associated data. I think anecdotes plus data is actually very effective. But right. again, this is where you have to be a critical reader. I mean, they give you one data point, which is their friend. Are yep. they giving you no data points? Are they using just sort right. of random words to sort of simulate the idea that they have some data when it's really just like a general, you know, m- impression that they have of something? 
So really, I guess just demand data where you can get it. And if you can't get data, I mean, let me use my recent post as an example. So I was talking about normalization of data. And I didn't really say, okay, do normalize or don't normalize, but like measure your queries and, and figure out you know, what works based on the data that you're getting through your system. And this is something, the reason I wrote that post is because on Stack Overflow, one of the very first things we did was say, okay, and I do this on all the projects that I work on, I want to know how long every query is taking. I want to know how many there are, I want to know how long they're taking. Not that I'm going to maybe obsess over every little query, maybe I will, but I just want to know, right? Mm -hmm. I want to see the data. Mm -hmm. So when I make decisions about, oh, let's change the database, it's not because I just feel like, you know, it's a better feng shui of, of having a database, but because it'll actually make the database faster. To me, response time is really, really important. Um, so if I can shave 50, 40, 50 milliseconds off a page load, to me, that's worth it. So yep. even though I, I can't tell you, I'm, I'm basing on a very limited experience, right? I, I haven't worked on every project in the world. I'm not like a database expert or anything, but you can measure your own stuff, right? This is easy for programmers to do. And then you can make a decision based on it rather than, oh, I was taught that everything has to be normalized or you know, well, but now you're just teaching people that everything has to be measured. <laughs> well, how is that bad? I mean, that's science. Isn't that science in a nutshell? Science is pretty much No, measuring. because you don't measure things until you have a problem. I would say don't bother even measuring that until you start to see that the response time doesn't feel snappy. And then say, why isn't the response time snappy? Well, but that's relative. I mean, have you ever – okay, so if you're a gamer, you'll notice this form where some people yeah. go into a form and say, oh, my God, this game is so slow. It's unbelievable. I can barely play it. And other people are like, oh, fine. Works fine for me. Yeah. Because the two people's relative impression of what's slow and what's not is totally not even. So you may have. Again, it's okay to say, like, that's that's fine. So you you have an you want to say I have an acceptance criteria for this type of application. I want 100 millisecond response time. Therefore, dot dot dot. We'll test against that, and only then will we actually measure how long the queries are taking or how many queries there are on a page. I don't know. Well, I think it makes sense to always measure, particularly in a world of you know computers where everything's really pretty easy to measure. Is there anything on the computer that's really that hard to measure? I mean, everything is you know ones and zeros and. Well, like for example, we, easy have to measure. Internal, we have an internal app that we use that shows us uh, uh, how much commission is due to the salespeople that I just wrote. Should I be measuring how long those queries take? Um, maybe not for an internal app, but uh, actually. All right. So there's there are cases where you measure in cases where you don't. Yeah, well, I, I would still measure it because you might want to know, but you might throw away that data. I mean, that's but the, the advantage of having it outweighs the advantage of, of not having it. I think the advantage of not having it is I didn't have to spend any time measuring anything. I just, I just, I just put the SQL query in, and lo and behold, I got a result, and it came up, you know, kind of fast enough. I think it was okay. Right, but that was uh, the end of that. Moved on. These data, these data access layers tend to have that sort of built in. At least ours does. Like I should be able to just turn this on and look at it and ignore it or look at it. And yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Um, I mean, having it, you know. It's a, well, back to, the original, back to the original thought, well, you know, whether or not that's uh, uh, um, germane. Um, the, 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 the anecdotes are very useful because actually hearing a lot, a lot of anecdotes, even if, no, the author doesn't have an agenda, is not trying to convince you of anything, but it's just telling you a story. Uh, the more of these stories you hear, the more you'll, you'll start to learn, uh, oh, wait a minute, this is a recurring you know, refrain, or maybe there is a particular solution. So but your, uh, your post didn't have even one anecdote. Like oh, I know, I know story, that was short. Yeah. So uh, you told me so it was based on the media player. Even having that one example would have made it a much, much stronger. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Article. That article would have been great if what I had said is I was listening to Jeff Atwood the other day, and he said that I could speed up, <laughs> and I wanted to speed up the podcast playing in Windows Media Player, and I went there, and it was grayed out. So how the hell am I supposed to do this? And then I could have said, guys, don't gray out things unless you're going to give me some kind of clue what I'm supposed to do. 
But you know what's funny about that? I guarantee I, you it would turn into sure. a hate fest of Windows Media Player. I yeah, guarantee that's, you. Uh, that's because that's, 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 that's hilarious. <laughs> so that's that exactly what would have happened. So I think we agree. We always do end up agreeing on everything, which is something that there's some criticism. We've been receiving some criticism for agreeing too much. I think we agree that the uh, anecdote would have been much more powerful and wouldn't have been making as strong a claim. And yet it would have been one of those things that would accumulate. It would allow everybody to gain the wisdom of a lot of different experiences. So they would be thinking of a lot of different use cases when they design things. They would be thinking of when they disabled that thing. You know, it would just give them a story that would remind them when they're disabling that menu item, am I leaving my user without recourse or with no way of figuring out how to ever get this capability if they can't get it right now? Well, so, I, actually, um, I, I don't yeah. agree that we agree. <laughs> I, I, I don't yes, think we do. Post, the post, as you put it up, we, I, yeah, I don't like this guy. What the, forget that. No. Don't I have a button to mute you? <laughs> well, but seriously, the post, as you put it up, was just really ineffectual like i wouldn't definitely wouldn't have published anything like that because i mean i, I, I was agree. experiment and all but i don't I know agree. I just, it was an experiment which proved that you can't do this it was a know. failure but you're also sort of gaming the audience a little bit which i think is a little a little dishonest if that was no no goal. it wasn't my goal i mean my goal was to see i i i thought that it actually that it would work to post some simpler shorter posts uh but it was too short i mean it's, okay Again, you, I don't know. But how do you uh, know that if you don't measure? The only way to well, measure yeah. is to try posting something that's too short and see that it doesn't work. Well, there wasn't even like one example. I mean, like, and plus you didn't cover any of like. Here's some other ways apps do this. There could have been. It could have been like you could have maybe three times as long, which is still pretty short by your standards. It would have yeah. been a much stronger article. It wouldn't oh, have yeah. been misinterpreted as much. Oh, we learned. And that, it wouldn't have we? taken that long either. <laughs> um, we learned that. Yes. Uh, I have a couple of more examples of uh, – I do think that there, there is something about anecdotes, which is that they don't really prove a point. If I had given one anecdote and then I had said, this proves that you should never disable menu items. I, I, I'm, in, in other words, we, we, got two, we, got, we got three possible things I could have done. One is I could have posted what I did, which is do this, don't do that. Uh, number two, I could have given some examples or anecdotes. So it would have been you know, do this, don't do that because A, B, C. Right, and uh, that's what I, I've done for years, actually. If you haven't noticed, and uh, um, I've I've been feeling kind of guilty about it. Um, well, but you also put tons and tons of words in between. I think you could have just <laughs> said the stuff yeah. you want to say. Example sentence, example sentence, example sentence. So I could have done this like one of those design patterns. Yes, like shown a couple of good examples, a couple of bad examples, uh, and and just just done it like a design pattern. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a page of yeah. Um, now the other thing I could have done which is something I'm going to be experimenting with uh, increasingly. And I'm doing this uh, as much as my editor lets me get away with it in Inc. Magazine, uh, where I have a monthly column, uh, which is, um, I, you know, I, and it's, it's part of just getting to the age in my life where I don't feel like I know anything. Uh, <laughs> or is That's, it nothing? Wait, is wait, cool. you're going backwards. You're going backwards. So as you yeah, get older, you feel like on, you know less and less. Is that what yeah, I'm hearing? Yeah, you're on the other side of that hump. You learn, you know more and more and more until you get to a certain age, and then you know less and less and less. Um, Anyway, <laughs> you, did you ever uh, learn a second language, Jeff? No, I did not, actually. Uh, well, no, I, was, I know Spanish. It took a lot of years of Spanish in Spanish. high school and middle school. Okay, so you can translate things to Spanish. I know enough right? to be a little bit dangerous in Spanish. That's about it. Like you can say things like, um, uh, excuse me, is the cow on your table? Yeah, like I could get by in Mexico if I was stranded. Barely, so, but. like, uh, how do you say uh, table in, in Spanish? Uh I don't know. <laughs> Probably, but uh, I know. 
I know enough of really basic words. It would be like speaking to a child, really. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, what happens is you're learning a language. As you go through a few phases, in the first phase, uh, you can't say anything because you don't know enough words. And in the second phase, it's just really easy. You know all the words. You've learned the vocabulary. You're like, blah, 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 blah. The third phase, you start to having – in the third phase, you start to have all these doubts because you try to translate a word. And you know about all the shades of gray and the way this word is not exactly like that word in this particular language and dialects and, you know, yeah, you could translate that. That would be the same thing, but it wouldn't convey the same sense of existential angst that that conveys in the original German. And so as you become a better and better translator, you actually get worse at simultaneous translation because uh, you start to uh, get confused about the various synonyms and shades of meanings in the cases where the words don't exactly overlap. And so uh, training people to be translators, actually, or simultaneous translators, uh, is in part um, training them to get to that next level of skill, which is above and beyond just knowing both languages, where you can actually translate quickly because you don't, you've removed all this kind of doubt that you gained in the phase where you were learning all the shades of gray and all the details and the minuscule. And I think that's something that uh, uh, happens a lot. I think that uh, you start your career out saying, you know, I don't know anything about the software development process, but I'm eager to learn. And you read a lot and you read a lot of blogs and you listen to people and you talk to people and you go to conferences and whatever it, whatever it is that helps you learn your field. And you just practice and you learn more and more and more and more. And as you start to get those first anecdotes and those second anecdotes and that particular story about the way a particular manager in your first job did a particular thing and it worked or didn't work, uh, you start to form uh, rules from, from very, very little information. And you start to say things like, uh, never throw away all your code. You can't throw away all your code and start over. Uh, think of how far behind that will put you uh, in, in the competitive world if you throw away your code and start over. And, uh, yep. huh? and you have said that. Yeah, you, you, you will say things like that. And that was based on uh, you know, a decision. I mean, it, partially it was based on a few anecdotes which are mentioned in that story of companies that did that and failed. And so I, I still th- I think it's correct, and I think that that, that is where the, the – the, overwhelming evidence is that once you have shipping code, you probably shouldn't throw it all out and start over, you know, uh, in a large system, not in a small system. You can you can throw out pieces of it and start over. Well, uh, people but- kind of gloss over, too, that, first of all, it took a long, long time. It was like five-plus years. Also, the yeah. business model totally changed. Where does Mozilla get their money from now? It's a totally different world. They get it from it- Google, basically, Everything. right? Through that, the fact that Google is integrated into the, the application. Every time somebody searches in Firefox using Control E, the search box, they get like a penny or whatever. I think um, I think um, I, I, I still think that was right. Anyway, the point is that you get to a, this this point in your career where uh, you you start to feel like you actually do have all the information about a lot of things, and that was the the the, the grand old Halcyonte. Uh, That's a word I can't pronounce. Halcyon, I think is correct. Days of Joel on Software. Really, not the person to ask about pronunciation, but go ahead. <laughs> the Halcyon days of Joel on Software. Uh, I sort of had that confidence. I'd come off of uh, uh, really like uh, let's see, 19, so 10 years of working in software development uh, and, and reading a lot and talking to a lot of smart people and working uh, in some places where they really knew what they were doing. And right. uh, and uh, and I wrote, you know, I basically just sort of dumped down the knowledge that I'd learned in those 10 years uh, as quickly as I could. Um, but uh, over time, you start to realize that there are actually all kinds of weird. Shades of gray and slightly different variations. I think it becomes harder and harder to make absolute statements that are interesting, because you you know if I if I were to write an intellectually honest blog post now, it would be like sixty three percent of the time 
you, you're probably in a situation where 63% of the time you should do A, and the rest of the time you should do B. Here are some cases where you would do A and some cases where you would do B, and the whole thing would just be too mushy. Nobody would want to read it. It would be awful of. Um, for example, one thing that I was pretty absolute about uh, is the idea that programmers should have private offices, which I still believe that pro- programmers are much more productive with private offices, and they're more willing to work for you if you give them private offices because the conditions are better. However, uh, since I have said these things, um, I've learned that a lot of programmers uh, actually uh, prefer to socialize. Uh, and not have private offices because they think of it as being more sociable and more fun. And they are less productive for it, and they're not going to admit that. They'll tell you, oh, well, we're having accidental productivity or whatever. But it's right. just more fun for them. And so one of the reasons why there isn't as strong of a movement towards private offices as I think there should be based on the productivity gains and the recruiting gains that you could get is that uh, a lot of programmers imagine private offices as being lonely compared to they're very, very social workspace where they're you know, laughing and chatting and joking and talking about the bar they went to the night before pretty much all day long. So that, but that's just a big old caveat. And am I supposed to put that caveat on everything that I say? I still think that private offices are the way to go. It's just that as I've learned more about the shades of gray, the kinds of things I might be able to say about particular topics become more muddled and more boring and so what I'm going to do and what I'm doing in Inc. and what I will do on my blog, I guess, uh, is I, I'm, I'm making a real strong push towards anecdote, anecdote only. In other words, my whole job is just to tell you stories. And whether or not they're relevant to your, your, your life is your problem to figure out. And if they have a moral, they have a moral. And if they don't, they don't. And maybe there's a little plot there and maybe there isn't a plot there. And maybe you can figure out the moral. But I don't have any kind of agenda in, in the stories that I'm telling. And that, that's what you'll see uh, increasingly – um, you'll see me doing increasingly in Ink Magazine uh, and on my well, blog. I, I think storytelling is, is very fundamental. And I yeah. think also, if, if you want to include some data, I think that, that you, you could kind of have it both ways. Um, but you don't have to. Like, for yeah. example, on the, on the private offices thing, like, I think the most radical form of that is when you actually take a small group inside a company and say, look, you guys can configure your workspace how you want it to be because there are certain developers that just want the private offices yeah. they just like yeah. to be isolated they don't like to have people all up in their grill all day and right. those people will be more effective if they work in an office whereas if they were at some workplace where okay everybody does x or everybody does y why not let the group configure the workspace the way that they want to well I, because I they don't want to be productive they want to have a good time at work <laughs> That's not what the bosses want, though. The people that are paying them should. Why, why not let the people who are paying them decide, I think? Well, I think if, if for the type of people you're hiring to do software, I mean, yeah. are, I mean, can you really even know what they're doing? I mean, on some fundamental level, I mean, it's really difficult to, to judge or <laughs> even really tell if a program is correct, right? Does it really even do what we want it to do? I mean, these are very hard things to judge. So for the type of people that you're hiring to do programming, not to, again, put us on a pedestal or anything, but I, I think these are the type of people that really are, can self-organize to, to some degree uh, their, their working organization with mm-hmm. some degree of trust versus, say, like factory line workers or, you know, janitors or I don't know. I'm, I, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I, I feel like that's a more flexible situation than, hey, everybody gets an office or, hey, everybody gets these incredibly depressing little cubicles like the one you were telling me yeah. about last week uh, downtown. <laughs> Oh yeah, they're not that different. Uh, you know, it's a little. Uh, it's actually. Uh, uh, it's it's. I don't know if it's ever possible. It's it's usually the development team has no say whatsoever on what kind of offices they get. Uh, these leases, commercial leases, are ten year leases traditionally. 
you know, you're in a place, it's been built, it is what right. it is, changing it is ridiculous, it's just like beyond impossible. Um, these decisions are made very, very rarely, and when they're made, they're usually made uh, you know, by some office manager's second assistant who was in charge of figuring out where the programmers would sit, who possibly, if you were very lucky, got to work with an architect, and the architect knows nothing about what programming, what spaces are right for programming, um, and, 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 they, and the architects have all their crazy metaphors like, well, an open space fo- fosters open communication, which is um, not, not true uh, <laughs> and is actually um, you know, not actually what's happening in the space, but, but sounds good and might be something you might have read in, in an architecture magazine somewhere. Um, so nobody knows what they're, what they're doing when they plan these spaces and they make uh, uh, terrible spaces. Um, and, and there are actually there, – there are a few examples uh, like uh, I think Microsoft had, had some flexible workspaces at one point um, where they actually come in. Uh, they raise the floor so that you can rearrange um, uh, the ductwork, which is the main reason you raise the floor so that the ductwork can be rearranged at will. And that's because you have to have ventilation in every room. And, uh, and then they make uh, – they use uh, – instead of uh, drywall walls, they use uh, these furniture systems that go all the way up to the ceiling. So it looks like a wall, but it's actually a part of a furniture system, much like a cubicle system. And that allows them to rearrange things kind of at will uh, very rapidly according to what the team wants to do. So there are a couple of workspaces like that uh, at Microsoft, and that seems to be the new trend. And I've heard of them at Microsoft Research specifically. Um, it's a really good video that Scoble did, I think, somewhere. I'm, now I have to track that down. You've added work to my list. I'm sorry. I'll try don't to do it. Just don't do it. There's some, somewhere it's among no, millions of do it. videos that I believe it was Scoble. Maybe it wasn't Scoble. Anyway, this, it's about an hour at Microsoft Research, uh, you know, following, following around some guy looking at their, their office space and how they did everything and how they use, um, how they collaborate and how they can rearrange their space at will. And I think what's interesting is that people probably won't rearrange it very much. Even right. though they can't. Um, how do we get so, onto that? That, that was, was just a, that was a very very long topic. Long Sorry <laughs> it, about it, that. it was good. It was good. It went into a couple different areas. So I do want to talk a little bit about Stack Overflow now. There's one piece of technology that I haven't talked about that is pretty critical. That I'm not sure how I neglected talking about until now. Okay. Oh. So in every application, you have a database, right? I mean, for the most part. I mean, are there databaseless applications out there somewhere? They've got to be pretty rare. So. Start with the database. So then you have the fundamental problem of how do you get stuff out of the database in a rational way? And by rational, mm-hmm. I mean in a way that won't make you claw your eyes out while working with it, right? Mm-hmm. So select star from users, right? Well, what you, what you get back in the nominal case is an array of typed columns, right? So this is the ID field. This is the last name field. This is the first name field. Yeah. That's a string. This is a number. This is a Boolean. What, uh, date, time, money, whatever kind of field types you got. By the way, you should never select star. You know that, right? <laughs> well, I'll have to write that down. We've been doing that. No, I'm just, yeah, of course. Select just, just the data that you need, obviously. Yeah, because uh, somebody's going to add some long column there, and it's going to make your whole select statement slower, even though you're not using the column. Right. There's also the art of putting the columns in the right order. So the long stuff is at the end, and the optional stuff is at the end. That actually helps performance a little. Nice. So, yeah, there's a okay. whole theory of that. Uh, so the whole process of, of – so you could write your application that way, where you just query stuff out of the database, and you're just directly working on these, these essentially arrays that come back from the database. But it's kind of awkward, particularly in a strongly typed language where you, know, you, you constantly are casting things back and forth, and just the code to update the database is, is very redundant. Um, you end up with a lot of the same code in a lot of the same different places. So yep. 
what what most people eventually arrive at is some form of what's known as object relational mapping, where right. you take the user table and through unspecified magic that happens, it turns into a user object. So this is nice. So instead of having an array of rows, you have user objects, and you go, oh, user dot name, oh, user dot mm-hmm. id, and then in the optimum case, you could do something like, you know, uh, give me a user. I give yeah. me this particular user. Uh, change username equals you know O'Reilly or whatever we're going to change it to, and then user dot or database dot commit right. So you've written no SQL code at all. It's just object magic. Yeah. Uh, and th- there's a whole set of systems that do this object relational to mappers, and right. they work generally pretty well. And the one we're using in particular is uh, C sharp. I think it was three zero or three five. I get a little squirrely on the versions. They become very dynamic in the way that they number the framework now. <laughs> To put it charitably, it's um, it's based on their check-in, their last check-in to the source code repository, whatever that number is. That's the version number. <laughs> right. uh, so there's this thing called Link, and what Link does is it basically lets the language be aware of SQL-like constructs, like where clauses, yeah. basically set-type operations that you would do uh, in in SQL, because SQL is kind kind of a set-based language, which sets it at odds with sort of your typical procedural code, we're just looping through. Um, but in Link. Uh, and, and particularly linked to SQL. So there's all these different flavors of link because it can't be Microsoft unless there's 10,000 versions of the same thing, right? So there's link to object and link to uh, all, all any number of link to whatevers. But the link uh, to whatever that we're using is linked to SQL. And it's actually pretty slick because you take a database and you drag it on this design surface and then it sort of infers all the classes sort of automagically. So this is mm-hmm. where you get the user object and you know the, the invoice object and all those other things. And they know about each other. This is the key thing. Based on the uh, foreign keys that you've set up and the indexes, they figure assuming, it out. Assuming that you do that. <laughs> well, right. Assuming that you set your database up properly. I, I have yet to have a reason to create a foreign key, so this may be my first reason to actually set up foreign keys. <laughs> yeah, without those relationships, it, it would be tough. But i got to say, it really is neat, because the other thing about Link to SQL that I personally like a lot is that you can do ad hoc SQL that can then be cast to the correct object type. So in other words, I could do just random query that gives me a list of five customers that have some totally unique set of criteria that nobody else would come up with, and then in the uh, line of code that I do that, say, hey, just cast this to user, right? Mm-hmm. And then I end up with an array of users, right? And actually, not, not even an array, it's actually set-based, so I can do link stuff on it. Like, I could take that set of users that I get back and do, uh, you know, dot, where, um, and then add a clause, and it's all typed code. So the other problem with SQL is that it's strings. Your, mm-hmm. your, your compiler doesn't know anything about the SQL. It's just a string. So you could have syntax errors. You could have completely incorrect SQL in there. Um, but with linked to SQL, since you're using language constructs to manipulate the tables for the most part, so if I remove a field from the user table, I immediately get compile errors on That's all cool. the link clauses. Yeah, on all the link clauses that use that field. Yeah. Whereas with a traditional app, you, you would be able to build, you could deploy the app, and it would just blow up on production because, hey, you deleted the you know, social security number field from the user table. We didn't figure that out until later. So the so. trouble here is that by the time they, uh, they finally solved this problem of object relational mapping, well, I don't want to say they solved it because there have been so many it's, proposals. Oh, it's not solved. It's not solved. This is yeah. very lightweight, though. What I like about Link to SQL, flexible, very lightweight, and built into the language. Those are yep. really the key things that make it workable for me. Because i, I got to be honest with you, I do not like... My feeling on object relational mapping is I, it's called the Vietnam of computer science for a reason, because there's really no good way to do it, in my opinion, that's, that's 
solves all the problems that you're inevitably going to have. You just sort of pick some pros and cons and run with it. Yeah. I lean heavily towards the data side of that because you don't have a problem if you if you do away with either the database or the objects. Then you just have one thing. <laughs> it's well, kind of radical, right? You say, hey, we don't even have a database. We just have a bunch of objects that we persist to disk, you know, just magically, right? No, but that's really irritating because the code that you would use because there's things you do in a database, like selecting a single column, that to do if you just had a bunch of objects would be enormously wasteful. Oh, totally. So let's, let's say, for example, that I, 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 all I'm doing is persisting a bunch of telephone numbers to a, a database. So I've got the C, C user, user with telephone object. It's got 47 fields for their billing address and their last payment due and all kinds of stuff because I'm the phone company and I'm listing every telephone number. And now I want to do a query, which is like, you know, what, what uh, um, uh, um, uh, area code has the most phone numbers or something. So I don't need any of the extra data. I don't need to load and instantiate all these objects. I just need to do a SQL query, a very basic underlying SQL query and the entities would just get in my way or just be really an efficient way of getting that particular thing. You know, select, I just want to do select count star from blah, 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 where blah, 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 and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And the database is going to look at that, and in a millionth of a second, it's going to tell me 37. I don't want to have to create a million objects and then filter them and so forth. Uh, so uh, there's, there's these whole classes of things that, that, that ORM doesn't really solve that relational databases do solve. Or I don't want to say ORM in general, but just mapping objects, just pretending that all I'm doing is taking an object and 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 freezing it and persisting it or pickling it and throwing it in a database. Right. Right. No, no, no. And actually, I agree with you because on the continuum of okay, pure objects versus pure database, where you don't, you literally don't have a problem because the other thing doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I lean heavily towards the database side. Like I've always viewed the data as the the model. Which yeah. this is this is heresy to a lot of people, so I apologize. But what I find is that linked oh, right. SQL, yeah, well, right. SQL is the lightest possible layer of object mm. you can put over that and get away with it and not have people complain, which is what well, I like about it. Plus, I can still do raw SQL and cast it to whatever object I want if I want to. Now, here's um, the other problem. Here's the other reason I haven't even started using Link. I mean, the first the first reason I I didn't start using it is that I saw immediately that for various IntelliSense reasons, it has an upside-down syntax where you say from, blah, 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 select, etc. And it has taken me, oh, how old am I? 43 years to learn SQL as well as I know it now. And just the idea of like coming back and learning uh, some kind of a backwards, upside-down SQL after all that effort I went into learning exactly how to do it is right. uh, very frustrating. So well, I, I was frustrated it, it, that it couldn't just be SQL. Right, it, it is aggravating. But the the advantage of learning it is it, it's, mm-hmm. it's applicable to any circumstance, not just the data circumstance. But say you have an array. You mm-hmm. can apply link methods to the array to get the data back out of it. Or some just class, some random class that's like a data structure that you have. Yeah. Any fundamental data type, you can use these constructs. So the power of having sort of semi-set-based logic built into the language so transcends the you done that yet? Have you done that yet? Have I done what? Used link on something other than a SQL database? Uh, not currently. I, like you, I'm still struggling. I mean, there's definitely a learning curve. I don't want to. Okay. I don't want to underestimate this. Seriously, I'm not kidding. Um, I believe and, this may be an oversold feature that you may wind up not actually needing in in, in daily application development. Well, the I think the ability you, to do link queries on in-memory things like like arrays. Why do you even have an array? Who has an array anymore? <laughs> No, well, seriously, you have, it's a table. No, no, hold on, hold on. I, I actually yeah. in in my HTML. So I have two sets of code: one that does HTML tag balance, and one yeah. that does sanitizing HTML. 
And for the tag balance, I, I have an array of regular expression matches. So it's an array, but it's not an array of like integers. It's an array of some kind of object, which you use generics for that, right? Like array mm-hmm. of type whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, I definitely use And I was, I was playing with using a stack. Um, I think some of these fundamental data structures are still right. in, uh, in. Well, all right. So I'm 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 looking at the world a little bit from the perspective of people that are building uh, data-driven kind of CRUD type applications, basically, uh, right. which is who Link is designed for. Really, it's not designed for the people that are building operating systems and need an array of memory allocations or something. Um, uh, you don't really use arrays that much. I'm trying to remember the last time I met an array in any of the database code that I've been writing. So wait, so here's the second, uh, here's my second uh, thing about uh, Link, uh, or, or, or I'm in general, is uh, like you say, it's the Vietnam, it's the unsolved problem of, uh, Vietnam, I think, uh, was solved, I guess. <laughs> I want to call it, I want to find a different metaphor. Um, the, uh, nobody ever really solved the ORM problem completely. Link is a nice lightweight way of doing it. Actually, my, the Microsoft, especially in the development tools group, has a pretty good track record of going into problems that have been big, thorny, hairy problems and not really solving them, but doing something kind of lightweight that gets you a lot of the way there. And I'm thinking of MFC as a great example. Uh, Trying to create these big, highfalutin, object-oriented graphical development environments um, just failed again and again and again and again. And MFC, they just finally just said, let's just do some lightweight wrappers around the Windows API to make it a little bit more object-oriented, and we won't be too ambitious, but we'll still save everybody a lot of work. And uh, they weren't, and they did. So, um, But think about this. I've got uh, a database, and it has a customer uh, record, and it has first name, last name, address, dot, dot, dot. It's got a bunch of stuff in there. Right. Uh, so it's got address, first line address, second line, suite, apartment, um, city, state, zip. Uh, country, phone number, billing address, shipping address, got all that. So, you, so suddenly you've got 23 fields uh, to keep track of a customer that everybody else has, which is annoying, which is why the hell doesn't the SQL Server team yet have a first-class address data type that knows about addresses all over the world? We have to keep writing this code again and again, but I'll move on. <laughs> I won't complain point. about that for now. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. There's all kinds of stuff. You know what? There's, all, there's weird stuff about addresses. In Yugoslavia, you put, uh, well, uh, sorry, Serbia, you put the country name first and then the city and then the street and then the guy's name. And, uh, and you know what? Microsoft Word knows that. And when it does mail merge, it will do that for that address in Serbia. And uh, it's, not, it's not impossible to have this knowledge and to wrap it up. And it should be done by, you know, there's a great feature for SQL Server 2008. And there's a great feature for the next version of HTML, giving an address editor that's just, Universal, you know, and and yes, I know it would have to know all about all kinds of weird addresses in 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 Serbia, but it, it's not it's not the end of the world. It, it is possible to write that code, and, and having it in one place would be a great thing. Um, so uh, wait, that was just a crazy distraction. You've got these twenty-seven fields: street address, city name, etc. And the what the what the object relational mappers do is they will get those things into properly typed variables in your source code. Right, and that's great. And that eliminates a lot, of the, a lot of these big blocks of code that you used to have where you would have 22 lines of copying out individual fields, casting them to appropriate type, and setting them to variables which had the same name as the column name in SQL. Yes, it definitely so saves time. 22 lines, psh, gone. That's right. great. The next problem is now I need to put it into my HTML page, and I have all these HTML controls that need all their text values assigned. <sighs> so, but, and and the, what, the, what, the, what Link doesn't do is it doesn't go that step for you yet. 
In fact, it was actually, it seemed to have been written, and I might be missing something gigantic here, but there seemed to have been two big things that we got in Visual Studio 2008. The first was this ability to embed our SQL right in the HTML page and have these data bindings and have it all happen in a declarative fashion. So the, the, those variables never stop in your code. They never, they're never seen in the code. And so you don't need variable names for them. They go literally directly from the database column. And all you got to do is map a database column to a particular ASP.NET control that's on a web page. Uh, and, um, and then there was the link guys that were doing something completely different, which was they were getting that stuff into C-sharp land mm-hmm. or VB.NET land. And uh, um, it, the, the, you could sort of do one or the other, and they each solve half the problem. So uh, it's kind of there's kind of an impedance a, a new impedance mismatch, which is we have finally solved the problem of uh, getting all of these columns into our, our programming language, but we don't even want them in our programming language. We want them over there on the HTML page. Well, even, one in, of, even yeah. in Railsland, where they have the flexibility to essentially redefine the language at will to solve all these problems mm-hmm. um, at, at a steep performance cost, obviously, but still, productivity is worth it. They still, if you look at the HTML that they emit, it's still a mishmash. It's basically tag soup. It's like mm-hmm. HTML tag, and then uh, you know, uh, a left Wait, a begin HTML tag. That they emit and, or that they write? Well, no, no, no. These are just template files. These are files on disk that are essentially yep. mail merge forms, right? There's little holes where you push in the data and the so logic. They write these. Yeah. The programmer creates these. Yeah, you have to. But, I mean, yeah. the mishmash of tags is still very, very painful, the tag soup, because it's really hard to read, because sometimes you'll have, like, conditional logic in the view page. Like, oh, if you're not an administrator, you shouldn't see this administrator menu on every item, right? Yeah. Well, that's logic that has to be in your in your template somewhere. Right. Um, and it's just it's really difficult to read. And we have the same problem in ASP.NET MVC, because it follows the MVC pattern. And, I don't know, the tag soup problem to me is still very much unsolved. It's like that stuff is so hard to read once you start getting a lot of variables and a lot of logic in it. Yeah. Um, it, it's a challenge. I've actually found that if you use some of the, uh, you know what, the, for me in, um, in, in ASP.NET programming, uh, probably one of the best and most underused features is user controls, which allow you to take a little blob of HTML and, and, and make your own control out of that. Uh, and this basically gives you the ability to take um, uh, some HTML presentation, like the, a, a small piece of the HTML template, and collapse it down to effectively one tag, or to create an abstraction, basically. And it can have its own code, and you can right. use it in lots of different places. Yeah, and, we do that. We do that. Yeah, and that's just a fantastic way uh, to um, uh, avoid large and convoluted and right. and, and she files. It just basically lets you use the same tool as, as you had in programming of subroutines and lets mm-hmm. you extend that capability of creating a, a simple abstraction to uh, co- uh, code that has um, some HTML piece as well right. or, or some tag, tag piece. Right. I have a blog post I'm going to write about that, that that I think will cover some of it. But I think the tag soup problem is very much alive and well and even the most advanced and radically new you know, web, the fanciest web programming environments you can think of. Uh, mm-hmm. But before we go too much further, I know we're close to the end. I want to get to at least one question because I always feel guilty if we don't. One. Oh, okay. I have a question. <laughs> oh, you mean one of our listeners? Yes. Let's do. Uh, um, let's let's uh, see. We we have uh, we have a really good question, but it's kind of long. They're all kind of long. I'm trying to find. Oh, here here's a short question. Okay. Hi, Jeff and Joel. I'm Paul D. Waite from Croydon, South London, England. 
I'm an aspiring Mac programmer, but my experience so far is mainly with web development in JavaScript and Python. I'm looking to learn C as a foundation for working with Objective-C on the Mac, and in the hope of receiving an approving nod from Joel. My question is, where should I start? Although most programmers don't read books anymore, I really like a comprehensive language book when I'm starting out to give me an overview of the language, uh, teach me the nuts and bolts, and hopefully give me an idea of good common practices and idioms. If you've got any book recommendations or other suggestions of good resources for learning C, then it'd be great to hear them. Question we can answer in seconds. Uh, Take it away, Joel. The C Programming Language by Kernahan and Ritchie, uh, otherwise known as K&R. And uh, it is um, uh, one of the best books about programming uh, that you'll find out there. One of the clearest and most concise. It's a simple language. It's a very clear book. It uh, has a way of teaching you things with just like little winks in the in the uh, in the the problems at the end of each chapter. Um, so uh, that's that's the book that I would recommend. There really is no other decent C programming book uh, that's even worth looking at. So the C programming language, Kernahan and Ritchie, is uh, worth learning C just uh, to have an opportunity to read that book. So I took that question because it was unbelievably easy. <laughs> right. Well, can I warn this this ask her away from learning C? Is that possible? Uh, sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would question, I mean, I, I would wonder if, if you really need to learn uh, C or not. I mean, I don't know. This is the classic <laughs> that we always have. But if you're hell-bent on learning C, then sure, K&R is the book. But, I mean, are there other languages you could learn that would uh, sort of give you the experience? Sorry. Give you the experience of learning C without actually learning C? I mean, is there anything close enough? Okay, here's my question, usual. Is there anything close enough to C that gives you the C experience while being a little bit modern? Like, say, Objective-C or C++ or any variants of C that you consider acceptable? No. No. It has to be the real C or nothing. There's, uh, yeah, I mean, you can, if you want to, you know what would be a good thing to learn? 68,000 assembler. <laughs> We're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> Well, that's because you're trying to find a programming language that eliminates something from C, which is exactly the thing I want you to learn. Uh, also, Objective-C, it's, it, it, before you learn Objective-C, it is a very good idea to learn C as a foundation for that. So if you wanted to do Cocoa programming, um, C is a great way to, uh, you know, it, 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 it's only going to add a couple of days at the beginning, and it's going to make your life so much better. I, I, you know, I used to find these C++ programmers that had never learned C, and uh, it was just sort of astonishing to watch them basically hit the wall again and again and again and again and again because they were missing some early concepts that nobody bothered to explain to them. Right, so should you learn C before learning C, do you think? Um, <laughs> should you mean should you learn C before learning C? No, but like I say, uh, 68,000 assemblers is a very good assembler. It's one of the last assemblers uh, that was designed to be written by a human being uh, because for a while, for a while uh, people did actually write in assembler and um, the chip manufacturers would give them actually kind of useful features that were helpful to programming. Um, and at some point, they stopped doing that, and they just said, you know what, it's only compilers that are talking to us, so you know, why bother? And uh, uh, the Motorola 68000, which was uh, very, very similar to the PDP-11 assembler, which was entirely designed to be written by humans. It's probably designed before they thought that there would be very many compilers. Uh, you don't have to learn Fortran. You don't have to learn COBOL. I'm not C. It's not C because it's old. It's C because of the uh, pointers uh, and and uh, stuff like that. 
Uh, anyway, that was the, it. The, nas- the, the nasty bits, right? Yes, the nasty bits. We have uh, we have some good questions for next week. Uh, um, do those first. Sure, uh, we'll do those first. Um, and do we have any other announcements? Did you want to? Did you want to talk about the uh, the huh? open house you guys are doing? Yeah, there's an open house at Fog Creek. If you get this, and it's and you're listening to this on time, it takes I know it takes people a while for podcasts to wind their way down into their ears. But if you're in New York and you're listening to this, and it is not yet Thursday, uh, July. 17th at 5 p.m., then on Thursday, July 17th at 5 p.m., we'd like to invite you to the Fog Creek office, New York, New York, 535 8th Avenue. That's uh, in between 36th, 37th Street, kind of on a schmutzy street here in the middle of the Schmata District. And uh, we're going to be having an open house with, uh, apparently, I, I, I was uh, chastised for claiming on my website that there would only be goldfish. There will actually be uh, you know, wine and cheese or something. Um, and you'll get to meet the uh, Fog Creek interns and the uh, software management trainees and then our new sales department and a whole bunch of uh, other interesting people. And, of course, the programmers who bring you Fogbugs and Copilot. Uh, right. So if you're in New York, uh, please come to that. I promise it will um, be terrible, but you can leave at any time. Um, I also want to thank a lot of the people. You know, uh, Jeff, I don't know if you've been looking at the transcripts, but uh, they, they pop up in a matter of a couple of days. Uh, which is really awesome. Uh, people, uh, whenever we post these things, um, we make available a wiki uh, uh, for typing in a transcript. And a bunch of volunteers all over the world, most of whom are I know only by their IP address, um, uh, come come up to that wiki and, and write down everything that Jeff and I say word for word, including every um, nervous giggle, not-so-nervous giggle. There's a lot of editorializing going on there. It's a barrel of laughs. Um, and it's very useful, actually, uh, to people who uh, can't listen to this for various reasons or don't want to listen to this. And also, it allows everything we say to show up in Google searches so, uh, you know, or to be readable, machine-readable, basically, so that people can find this. Because otherwise, it's just audio. You know, it's, just, it's, it's lost um, forever. Yeah, why can't Google index audio yet? They're really slacking off. They, uh, you know what? One thing they, they probably could do uh, is for the purpose of searching audio, you don't have to have very good... Um, uh, Voice recognition, just to search, because you know. Mm, I don't. I don't know. I, uh, a listener wrote in with some machine transcription, and I was yeah. kind of appalled. Yeah, it was appalling. It was, but if you were searching for specific things, uh, they might have been in there. You know yeah. What I'm saying? So, uh, uh, yeah, the, the machine translation is appalling, and I think um, m- my personal experience is that the uh, the machine transcriptions are harder to edit than just to type it right in the first place. But anyway. Uh, yeah. So I do want to thank some of the people that have been coming in and contributing. Uh, there's uh, 70.56.88.179. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, some of the people who identified themselves uh, deserve a special call out. Josh Paris, uh, Bernard Dye, uh, Justin Standard, Jan Ives, um, Jeff At- Atwood. Atwood, I can't pronounce anything these days. A-T-W-O-O-G. I don't know who that is. Just standard, and yes, uh, nice. and user one twenty six, user one forty three, seventy one dot ten dot one sixty one, etc. Thank you very much uh, for the transcriptions. It's uh, really very uh, much appreciated. And uh, a lot of people have been sending in great questions. Uh, I didn't get to there. There's a there's about a dozen of them, and I didn't get to uh, any of them today except for the one easy one. Uh, hey, how about next call? All questions. Uh, okay. So, um, but but come up with something interesting. Um, the, the questions. Let, let's see. What, what, what would you consider interesting? We want we want to contr- controversial things. 
I, I just whatever people send in. I mean, yeah. I don't have any specific guidance. Whatever they think would be interesting to hear about. Really. When I listen to them, you know what I'm doing right now? I'm sort of de-emphasizing the questions where somebody says, hey, will Stack Overflow have this, that, or the other feature, or how will you do this in, your, in, in Stack Overflow? And the reason is that uh, people haven't seen it yet, and so those questions are like, okay, 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 hold on a sec, just look at it, and then you'll have lots of right. questions. So hold off on the questions about Stack Overflow because it's a little bit theoretical now, but anything we've discussed on the podcast is obviously uh, fair play. Uh, well, Joel, assign those to me, and what I'll do is I'll do a blog entry on our blog, oh. uh, summarizing those, All right. so that at least their questions get answered, you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's because a, that's I don't want to feel like we're name. throwing away their questions because they took the time to record them and send them in. So I do want to answer them. So uh, if you do want to ask a question, I haven't. I, everybody recommended that I get Grand Central. Uh, that was the number one recommendation. I tried to sign up for that, but it's like a waiting list or something. So I might as well. Uh, it's like the iPhone 3G, except at least the iPhone 3G, if you wait in line for six hours, you can get it. Uh, whereas right. Grand Central, you just put your name in a box and then they ignore you. So if any of you work on Grand Central... Uh, or know anybody there, could you please approve my application to become a member of Grand Central? Um, and that way we could set up a phone number to take uh, questions. Um, failing that, there are some other services that were available, but um, the real thing that we'll do is we'll just get our asterisk, asterisk server hooked up to do it. Uh, unfortunately for that, I need another direct inward dial number, which we don't have in this office and we will have in the new office. So we may not have a phone number for you to call in uh, uh, to ask those questions uh, until September when we move into the new Fog Creek office, and then I'll set that up. Um, in the meantime, you got two choices. One is you can record an MP3 or Ogvorbis file using your computer's microphone and uh, recording software and email it to uh, podcast at stackoverflow.com, uh, or you can go to Blog Talk Radio, cinch, sorry, cinch.blogtalkradio.com. That's C-I-N-C-H, and as usual, Jeff will link it in the show notes. And uh, that's a little service that lets you call a phone number and get an MP3, which you can then send us. And a lot of people have been doing that, too. It's very easy. So, Joel, were you just asking for preferential treatment? Was that what I was hearing? Yes, um, I would like some preferential treatment. I would like my friggin' Grand Central account, please. <laughs> I'll pay for it. Okay. I'm just kidding. You know, all these things, they get acquired by Google, and then they shut down. Because they can't yeah. take yeah, as we, traffic as as they uh, as the Google audience would bring them, so they rebuild yeah. the whole thing in Python or whatever it is that Google likes to rebuild everything in. And in the meantime, they're closed for a year or two. I think that's where Grand Central is right now. I see. It's probably written in C. They have to rewrite it. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's probably it for this week, then. Yeah. Sorry, I was uh, so grumpy at the beginning there. That's all right. Not a problem. Let's just delete this whole show and do it again next week. <laughs> No, I think it was a reasonably good show. We can probably ship it. Right. Just like software. It doesn't always come out the way you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ship it. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is... Joel Cherney. This is Phil Windley. 
I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.